How are you doing tonight? Doing great, Tim. I'm always so excited to come here and teach. I anticipate, I look forward to it. Look forward to it all week. Thank you, Drew, for the music. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Proverbs. It's right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. We're going to talk about that. So we just came off of Psalms, right? Last week. So I was thinking about Proverbs. I think this is the fourth time I've had an opportunity to teach with y'all. The first time I was thinking about uh, probably a year ago, it was a subject. Josh asked me if I would teach about the resurrection of Christ, and so he gave me a subject to teach about. I could teach from anywhere in the Bible, so I remember we went to Corinthians. The two big things we took away from that was uh, without the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope and we have no gospel. I don't expect you all to remember that, but the point is that night I was teaching a subject. The next time I had an opportunity to teach, it was the book of Leviticus, completely different. A whole book, a book of laws, ordinances, and instructions very different than a subject. There's times where you feel like you kind of get bogged down in Leviticus. And the third time was Kings, and that's a narrative. The story of the people of God and how he's dealing with them and restoring them back to himself. And so tonight is completely different. We're still looking at a book of the Bible because we're on the Emmaus Road. But it's not narrative. It's not laws, ordinances, and instructions, and it's not a subject. Proverbs is a different book. It's kind of outside the scope of the rest of Scripture, and yet it's right at the heart of Scripture. Literally, if you open up your Bible to the middle, you're probably going to hit Proverbs. And that's significant for us because I think the whole Bible is founded off of the principles in Proverbs. It's founded off of wisdom. So I'm going to try not to bore you to death, but we're going to talk about it. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to get started. Lord, we want to stop what we're doing and want to come to you knowing that you have all wisdom knowing that we could read your word, uh, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and still be just as blind as the Pharisees and Sadducees were. So, Lord, we understand that unless you open up truth to us, we will not have it. So, Lord, tonight, please make that possible. Open up our eyes to see. Give us wisdom. Give us insight to see the spiritual truths that we will be blind to otherwise. We love you. Thank you for Jesus and all that you have done for us, through him, for our benefit and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Proverbs, like I said, it's not narrative. It's a whole collection of, you might say, micro sayings. You have all, everybody in here has read Proverbs at some point, right? You're familiar with it. You know what it is. We've got Proverbs in our culture that we know. If I told you a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, you've heard that before. If I said fortune favors the bold, you've heard that before. If you go to the gym, you've heard no pain, no gain. These are all proverbs. The thing about them is they actually have power. You don't realize it, but once you have heard it, it changes your perception of something in this world because it has both truth and perspective. Okay, so how many of y'all eat hot dogs? What if I told you what's in a hot dog? It's all this terrible stuff. Would you still eat it? No. Yes. (laughs) You might would. You might choose to. But most of the time when people find out what's in a hot dog, they say, gross, that's disgusting. I'm not going to eat it. Okay? The point of that is when you hear something, if it's true, it's going to change how you live, how you act, what you think. Okay? So that's why if you're in the gym and you're sitting there with 250 pounds across your chest trying to push it up, and it's hurting, you're going to say no pain, no gain. You're going to throw everything you've got into it, right? 
That's what, that's what you're going to do. Because you have a proverb to operate off of. You have a little micro snippet of saying, something to give a different perspective that changes how you live. All right? That's really important. I said that Proverbs is at the heart of Scripture. It is. Everything kind of comes from it and bleeds into it and crosses over. Um, actually, Proverbs 3 says that by wisdom, God founded the earth. And so there's little snippets in there talking about how wisdom connects all of these things together. Uh, when you're talking about a proverb and how they have power over your life, Matthew Henry talks about that. He said, the word mashal, here used for proverb, comes from a word that signifies to rule or have dominion. That's really appropriate, okay? Because these little sayings, what they're going to do is once you hear them, just like if I told you what was in a hot dog, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. And it's going to change the way that you think about something. Whatever you have formed is something true. The proverb's going to reshape it into something else. And now you've got uh, a different perspective to hold that truth with. Um, this is nothing new. If you go back to ancient philosophy, the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the people that are real famous from that culture, had these maxims that they operated off of. One of the most uh, well-known might be uh, know thyself. There were three on the, uh, transcribed on pillars. When he went into the temple, Apollo, that was one of them. Another one is nothing in excess. And uh, these were things that as the great minds of the day approached this court to have these conversations and these debates and these talks about philosophies, these were the things that they would see as they entered that. And there would be things that shaped that conversation, things that they came back to. And so, uh, these are powerful truths that shape the way men think. And that's what we want Proverbs to do. We need it. We need Proverbs to shape the way that we think. So with that said, if you've got your Bible, the first thing I want to do is just go through several of the Proverbs, just give a broad scope of some of the things that you get from it, and then we'll start zeroing in. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. And all of these are just going to be broad truths that we're going to focus in on real quick and move on. Proverbs 3, chapter 5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. In verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 10. Verse 4, in Proverbs 10, 4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And that's just true. You're going to sit around and not do anything. You're not going to have a lot of wealth built up in this life, right? But if you're out there getting after it and hustling, working hard and being diligent, then you're going to be producing something. And that's true. If you flip over to chapter 11, verse 4, there's another thing that's true, also talking about riches. It's a different perspective. Chapter 11, verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Okay, so the, first, or the second verse we read talks about how if you're going to work hard, you're going to be productive. If you're lazy, you're not going to be productive. You're not going to produce. You're not going to gain anything. But then you've got another truth. It's not opposite, but it's a different perspective. 
we stand before the Lord on the day of wrath, the day that God is going to judge the living and the dead, he don't care how much money you've got. It says righteousness delivers from death. And y'all know we've talked about that before. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course, the point is, unless your righteousness is equal to Christ's, you don't have any righteousness. And that's why we need Christ's righteousness. So here's a snippet. I want to take a minute to talk about how a proverb can be true, but it is not the truth a lot of times. So in, uh, in the beginning, I talked about how a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. All right, so that proverb is true, saying that if you have something sure that you're able to hold on to and contain and keep, it might be worth holding on to that instead of letting go of it to pursue other things that you may or may not be able to get. Makes sense, right? So if you've got money, if you're going to use that proverb to help you in your life, if you've got money, you could say, well, I could invest it or I could put it in the bank. That'd be application of that proverb, okay? You could say, well, I don't want to lose what I've got, so I'm not going to invest it just put it in the bank, and I'll have it. I'll keep it. And that's keeping that bird in the hand. But at the same time, there's a proverb that says, fortune favors the bold. Well, if you need two birds, if you want two birds, you're not going to get them if you're busy holding the one. So you might have to risk what you have as a sure thing to go after the two. Both of those proverbs are true. Both of them would point you to a very different path in life. Does that make sense? A proverb can be true in and of itself because it is a perspective but sometimes a proverb in and of itself is not the truth. Makes sense, right? Okay. Let's read a few more. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. Proverbs 15, 1 says this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I have depended on that proverb in my life at times, especially at work. I work in the customer service industry. So when I come up against somebody who's irate, I say, I know what's going to dissipate this anger. And I become humble in my countenance. I become humble in my speech. I speak softly. And the people soften. So I've depended on this verse in the Bible more than once to handle myself where I work. Does that make sense? All right, let's look at another. Chapter 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and good. Let's look over to chapter 22, verse 1. 22.1 says this, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. That one's harder to apply a lot of times, but there's a lot of ways in your life something's going to come up, and you're going to have a decision to make. Maybe it's a decision to lie about something that you did, which is a whole other thing. Whatever the situation is, operate off of this proverb, okay? A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. You've heard it. Hopefully that's going to change the way that you think now. Uh, let's tr uh, flip over to chapter 24, verse 1. Twenty-four one says this, Be not envious of evil men, 
nor desire to be with them. There's a theme throughout Proverbs. We're not going to hit on it tonight, but this is not the only time that Proverbs has this to say. And it probably says it because there's something true about it. I don't think Scripture would say, don't envy an evil man if there wasn't something in us that didn't already envy an evil man. And what you're going to find is a lot of times that's what's at, at your heart when you're coveting, when you see people in this world gaining riches, wealth, honor, power, pleasure, whatever it is from this world, there's something in you that says, I want that. I want a little piece of that. But maybe, you know, I'm a Christian. Maybe I can't pursue the things that they're pursuing in that world. Well, know that they might have a delicious meal for a day, but if they're not in Christ, that's it. Okay? There's a coming judgment for that person. Don't envy that person. Don't have a heart of covetousness towards that person. Makes sense, right? Uh, Chapter 26 Verse 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We've all had that friend before that just thinks he knows so much, right? There's more hope of a fool. The point of this, too, of when you take this to heart, of course, you think about the, the other person that you've had in your life that's going to be arrogant and prideful about what they think that they know, but don't be that person. Be quick to learn. Don't assume that you know everything. Be open to learning what you don't know. You know, maybe if you knew what was in a hot dog, you wouldn't eat it. I'm going to keep riding that horse, I guess. <laughs> I actually don't know what's in a hot dog. That's just a really good example. Uh, 2620. I really love this one because it kind of encapsulates an idea that you uh, have as a picture in the world and then brings perspective into something that you will have. So, 2620 says this, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. So don't fuel the fire, right? It's pretty cool. Uh, Last one, chapter 29, verse 26. I'm sorry, chapter 28, 26. Chapter 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So you could go through all of this, and there's just all this wisdom that once you hear it, you can't unhear it. It's going to shape the way that you think about certain situations in your life. Uh, Just if we go through the book of Proverbs broadly, the first nine chapters are kind of the introduction. They kind of set it up. Starting in chapter 10, moving to, I think, chapter 29, it is literally just the Proverbs of Solomon, where he's just given kind of spitfire all these Proverbs. And then you've got uh, chapter 30 and chapter 31. Chapter 30 is the words of Agur, and 31 is King uh, Lemuel. So that kind of broadly paints the picture of what's going on in Proverbs. I want to hit on quickly just a few themes that we have going on. There's a lot of themes, so I just want to draw a few out, and hopefully we'll spend some time on the last two. One, uh, you'll start to notice pretty quickly the theme of a father speaking to his son over and over at the beginning of a chapter and over and over throughout the chapter, you're going to hear a father speaking to his son. So going back to chapter 1, we're going to see it early on in verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. We go to chapter 2, verse 1. My son, 
If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. If you go to chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, hear, O sons, a father's instruction. And on and on, you've got this theme. So I'm going to be honest with you. When I was looking at that, the reason I'm bringing that out as a theme is because I thought if I was a person that for whatever reason didn't have that father figure in my life to give me wisdom, I'd be reading it because that's a father's instruction for his son saying, here are the good things in life. Choose these. Here are the bad things, the things that make you foolish, the people that lead you to ruin. Don't choose them. So if I was a person that was struggling with that relationship, that father figure, and I'd find some comfort in that book. You're not left out. You've got fatherly advice right here. And it's not just father to a son. It's, it's wisdom for everybody. But when I was looking at that, I thought, man, how practical is that? The father to the fatherless, you know, and God gave us instruction right here. You know, one of the verses is train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you don't have that person in your life training you up in the way that you should go, you're not left out. You're not destitute. It's right here. Let's just read it. Let it change your life. So there's that theme. There's another sign, uh, another theme, and we're not going to dwell on it, but there's always a comparing or a juxtaposing, which is a word we just used to describe, you take one thing and compare it to another. There's always this comparing two things. There's the good and there's the bad. There's the wise. There's the foolish. There's, um, you know, somebody that's going to lead you into a path of righteousness, somebody that's going to lead you down a path of foolishness. So, so Proverbs is kind of this bouncing back and forth, which I appreciate because what it's doing is it's spelling out both sides so you don't have to wonder and you don't have to guess. You know, you can kind of actually find yourself in there, find the people around you in there. You can end up saying, man, I'm making those decisions that are coming from that place of wisdom. I'm not doing the stupid things. Or you might check up and say, I'm kind of acting like a fool here. Maybe I'm throwing my lot in with the wicked because I want that companionship and that friendship and that community. You know, maybe I'm willing to sacrifice what I know is smart to gain that something that I'm longing for. And there's a lot of that going on in Proverbs 1. It spells, it spells it out a lot. Uh, in verse 10, my, sinners in, my son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive, the whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their path. There's a lot of things promised there by this wicked person. Like I said, a sense of community, a sense of belonging, the relationship that we're hungry for. There's a lot of things that your, your flesh is going to be attracted to. They're not enticing you with things that you don't want. They're not saying, hey, we, we're poor, we hate each other, we are uh, isolated. They're not offering those things. They're offering something that your flesh wants. That's why you're drawn to it. That's why there's an enticement there. Use wisdom. Know what that entice, enticement's coming from. Use wisdom. Know who is enticing you. And use wisdom. If it is a wicked, evil person 
know that that will lead to ruin and hold your foot back from them. Make sense? The third theme, and this is what I want to spend a little bit of time with. We've got two more. Uh, the third theme is that wisdom is personified in Proverbs. Okay, there's a personification of wisdom. It is not spoken about like a textbook, okay? It's not saying, go here, read, you'll learn about wisdom. Wisdom is spoken of as a, a person or a being, almost. You see it over and over. Um, in chapter 1, verse 20, you see it. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. So again, that personification of wisdom, okay? Moving ahead in chapter 3, we see it again. 3, 13, and 15. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Keep going. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. Chapter 7, verse 4, and this is the last one. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. So now what I want to do, because the whole point of this study, the Emmaus Road, is to find Christ, right? If Jesus is teaching himself from Proverbs to these two people on the road to Emmaus, how is he going to bring out himself from the text? As of yet, we have not seen it. Proverbs is a little bit tricky because you could make blanket statements, but I believe that this personification is what leads us to find Christ in Proverbs. We just finished in chapter 7. If we move to chapter 8, it opens up with, does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? If you move to verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find knowledge and discretion. So we start out with a subject, which is wisdom, and then we have a personification of wisdom. In verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. So that's the subject, that's the person that we're looking at. And then if you move to verse 22, the Lord possessed me, that's the wisdom, at the beginning of his work. Now this took me a while to work out. When I first started looking at Proverbs, I read that verse and my mind kind of expanded. I thought there's something bigger than what my mind can grab hold of, and I want it. There's a truth in there that I want to find. So I started digging. I started praying, Lord, what is it that's true about this passage? Because I'm not seeing it. I see it, but it's cloudy. It's kind of like looking through that fog. I know it's there, but I can't make out the shape of it. So I start working through what this is. Let's just read a large passage here, starting in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, 
I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, and when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the seas its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. There are some claims made here about the subject wisdom that can only be true of Christ. And it's not just here that we see these truths. When we read a verse like, then I was beside him a master workman, we think of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Let's flip over, actually, John 1, because we'll look at that together. It's a very well-known passage, a little bit mysterious, until that light bulb has clicked. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's Christ. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 says, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So John 1 is a place we go to as a cross-reference, and we start to see that this is Christ, the master workman who was with God before the mountains were formed, before the hills were shaped, before the ocean, before the was drawn on the face of the deep, before all of that, Christ was with God. Now, we have a truth that we've got to figure out what to do with. We know that wisdom is being personified. We know that it's being personified. Here is Christ. How can Jesus be wisdom? How? This is what my mind started to wrestle with try to figure out, because it didn't click. It didn't click until just recently, and I realized this. Let me see if I can paint a picture, see if I can bring y'all with me, because it's, it's still a little bit shaky in my mind. When I was growing up, there was a basketball player named Michael Jordan. A little bit better than LeBron James, but, you know. <laughs> to me, he was basketball. If you took Michael Jordan out of the NBA, you didn't have the person that represented basketball. To me, basketball, the NBA, was Michael Jordan. He was the greatest, okay? So what we had is a person that embodied the thing, right? Does that make sense? Makes sense, right? Jesus perfectly embodies wisdom. What I mean is this, if you see Christ, if you know Christ, you know wisdom, because absolutely everything Jesus did was wise. Every decision he made, 
every statement he made, every thought he had was wise. So if you want to know wisdom, look at Christ because Jesus is the wisdom of God. And I'm not making this up. As I'm going through that as a thought process, I start looking to Scripture. Does Scripture testify to this? Is it true? Am I way off base? So if y'all want, y'all flip with me. We're going to look at a few verses that actually literally talk about Jesus being the wisdom of God. Colossians chapter 2. And that was a little bit harder to find. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 2 says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Isaiah speaks to this as well, Isaiah chapter 11. There's a passage here that's prophetic of Christ, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. If you look, flip to 1 Corinthians, you have another place where Scripture testifies to Christ being the wisdom of God. In two places, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. And in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So if you want to find Christ, it's not spelled out, but he is personified as wisdom in chapter 8. He is the wisdom of God. If you want to know wisdom, look at Christ. Imagine that there was one person on earth that perfectly followed every single precept put forward in the book of Proverbs. You say, well, that guy is wisdom. Like, I could read the book or I could watch him. That dude is wisdom. That's Jesus. He is the wisdom of God. The last thing that I want to do is go back to chapter 1. Everything that we've done so far, we've moved through the book, we've looked at some of the snapshots of the verses, we found Christ spelled out in chapter 8, there's actually something really, really, really important that we skipped over, that we have to go back to and realize there's a starting point. In chapter 1, verse 7, we have a key statement. This is, I'll read up to it so that that's a little bit of context. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, 
knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So he's setting up what the whole book's about. This is a key verse before we move any further. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if I was going to start writing a book about wisdom, not about knowledge, but about wisdom, about the things that are true behind what you can see on the surface, if I wanted to do that, I would probably want to give the key to help my reader unlock those truths. This is the key. And unless you take that key, put it in lock, and turn it and unlock that truth, you will literally have a bar, a wall, a barrier between you and the truths on the other side. Does this make sense? Everything's written in a code, right? And unless you know the code, you will not make sense of what's on the page. Does that make sense? Y'all follow me. Y'all know this is true. What does it mean that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Could just mean your general attitude towards him. It could mean that when you see him, you turn around around and run away? That's a type of fear. What does it mean that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Shouldn't it be the love of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Shouldn't we come to God because we love him? Isn't he worthy of love? But that's not what he says in the book. He says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I'm not going to go against it and say, if you love God, you'll be wise to say, if you fear God, and I'm not alone in saying this. Proverbs 8.13 spells out what that fear looks like. It says this, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil. Proverbs 16.6 says this, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Deuteronomy speaks to this, chapter 8. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Job speaks to this in Job 1, 8. When God is speaking about Job to Satan, this is what he says, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job 28, 28 repeats almost exactly what Proverbs says. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Psalm speaks to it in Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And again in Psalm 25, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And again in Psalm 34, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil 
and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. We could go on and on and on and on and on. The fear of the Lord is a big theme in Scripture. And what I saw most consistently is that the fear of the Lord is an active fear. There is something about it that turns you away from evil. All right? And here's what it comes down to. When that spiritual light bulb first goes off in your head, and you understand that there is a God, He is real, He is powerful, you can't negotiate with Him, He's given a law, it's exact, and He's given the punishment of breaking that law. When those thoughts start to combine at first, at the regenerating of the Holy Spirit, when you see yourself in need of help, in a place of trouble, when you realize God's got a law, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make or bow down to any graven image, idol. Um, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. You should not covet. And remembering what James says, if you've broken the law in one respect, you're guilty of breaking the law. Once that hits and penetrates your heart on the fault line, then you say, something in me is wrong. I need help. I need something outside of myself. Because if I stand before God, condemned by his law, knowing that the wages of sin is death, what I have actively pursued and earned to give my time and effort and energy to is actually building a wealth of death in my bank account. And one day that's going to be cashed in. I'll be condemned to hell. It is only at regeneration, it is only at the point of salvation that that fear of the Lord happens. So here, Solomon, when he's talking about the fear of the Lord, that's what he's getting at. Because if you don't have that, you will not fear the Lord. Romans talks about this. Talks about the people in that society that did not have a fear of the Lord. Abraham in Genesis 20 when he's going into Egypt and he's scared for his own life because he says, my wife's beautiful. They'll kill me for my wife because they don't fear the Lord. How many times have you gone through a place in society and you said, these people are just degenerate. I know that there is no fear of the Lord. I know that his law is not reigning here. This is real. There are certain places that you will go and you'll say, there is no fear of the Lord. And there's another, you know, there's another truth. You might walk through a place, but man, these people seem upright. They seem like the fear of the Lord is uh, in them, you kind of want to be around those people, right? It happens at regeneration. It happens at salvation. That's when the fear of the Lord actually becomes real. Because for the first time you realize, just like if you're on the edge of a beach, and you look out over the ocean, and there's a hurricane, and it's coming toward you. It's going to make landfall. You understand that that is a power of infinite, infinitely greater proportions than you. It has the power to destroy you, Right? And you can't negotiate with it. You can't bribe it. You can't talk your way out of its path. It's got a mind of its own. This is God. He's infinitely more powerful than us. And we can't negotiate with him. 
We can't bargain. In my own life, it was only when I understood my sin that I became afraid, and I said, God, I actually am in really deep trouble. If you don't save me, no amount of begging will help. No amount of serving will help. And I will not forget the time I was flat on my face, smelling carpet, with the realization that I'm hanging by a thread over a fiery furnace. And I was afraid because of who I was, because of who God was. I had a fear of the Lord that I had never had in my life. That was the fear of the Lord at work in me. And what it produced is a turning away from evil. When God regenerated me, gave me life, saved me, forgave me of my sins, gave me the righteousness of Christ, all of the things that happened at salvation, I turned away from evil and continued to turn away from evil. Why? Because those are the things that God's wrath falls on. Who in here is familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress? I know some of you, yeah. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, he's, Pilgrim is running away from the city, and people are asking, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Where do you live? He says, I live over there. That's the city of destruction, and I'm escaping it. And it's the picture, as John Bunyan writes that, that illustration, it's the picture of what happens in our life when God starts to save us. We realize that we are in a city of destruction where God's wrath is sure to come, and we start looking for a way of escape. This happens in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gets up at Pentecost and starts giving this sermon to everybody. At the very end of it, he says to the people, save yourself from this crooked generation. Essentially, get out of the city of destruction. We're in the same days as Noah. In that, God's wrath will come. The world became so corrupt, God promised that he was going to destroy it, promised a flood to wipe everybody away, but Noah found favor inside of the Lord. He created a vessel to protect Noah from what? His wrath. It was the water, but it was his, it was his wrath on earth. The fear of the Lord, understanding who you are, who God is, makes you look for that vessel, which we know is Christ. It's Jesus. And if you're in Christ, he will bear that wrath for us, and we will be safe from it. Makes sense, right? So the fear of the Lord starting at that understanding that his condemnation will fall on those who do wicked, it actually moves past that. At some point, because we love God, we hate the things that He hates, and we agree with Him that those things are not good. At some point, we say, I don't want anything to do with adultery, any part of it, even the lusting, which is what Jesus taught. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look, at some point, your heart's changed. You say, that's, that's destroying me. It's destroying me and other people. I don't want it. At some point, your heart has changed. You don't want to tell those lies. You don't want what the evil people had. You no longer covet. This is what it produces. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what that means. When you understand who God is, that His wrath is going to fall on those things, when you understand that He's prohibiting not good things, but bad things, destructive things, things that if you practice them, you're actually storing up wrath for yourself. You want no part of it. That is the beginning of wisdom. 
Why is that important to understand? If you don't understand that, what you're going to be doing is what the Pharisees did, making a checklist of things you ought to do and doing them and calling yourself good, patting yourself on the back. Plenty of people have ended up there. Don't be that person. That's not the point of Proverbs. The point of Proverbs is not to be a good person. That's not. You won't be a good person by doing these things. But if God has regenerated you, if his spirit is inside of you, if you have a fear of the Lord, your foot will be turning away from evil. You will be. Let's pray. Lord, we claim to know these things, but good grief, they're so much bigger than us, and we're so helpless in our endeavor to understand this. Lord, only you can give that fear. Only you can open up our eyes to see you for who you are and us for ourselves. Lord, make us like the thief on the cross that spoke out against the first one hurling abuse when he said, do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Let let that be our testimony that we are indeed under the sentence of condemnation justly, but that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Lord, put it in us to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Give us saving faith that comes from you. Give us godly repentance. Lord, do the work that only you can do and use us for your glory. We love you. Make a prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.